Psalm 7 is going to introduce to us several aspects to God's character that we're not typically, again, used to talking about. I'm going to have you turn to Psalm 7, give you a minute to turn there, and then I'm going to read a New Testament passage to sort of set the platform. Psalm 7, if you, do, if you did not bring a copy of the scriptures, you should find one in front of you, uh, in, in front of the chair just before you. Go ahead and take that out. Um, most of us, everyone, let us be turning to the scriptures, let us look at the word, see what God has said to us. While you're making your way to Psalm 7, let me just read this. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans chapter 12. You're going to see some of these themes in Psalm 7 this morning. I've had you turn there, and something that we have to sort of just put right out there, right at the beginning, is this. Everyone in the world, without exception, faces adversity. Everyone. You're going to see this right at the beginning of your scriptures in Genesis 3, because this is part of the curse. And as soon as Adam and Eve choose to sin, the curse is pronounced and immediately you have interpersonal conflict. As a matter of fact, in Genesis 4, you have two brothers, and the older brother kills the younger brother. So you have this, this curse and this sin already reaping disastrous effects. Psalm 7 revolves around the idea of a specific sin. So this is the, the fallenness of humanity and Psalm 7 really revolves around the idea of false accusations or what we might say is slander. The old child's rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. You know that is a wholesale lie? It really is. Matter of fact, we, we start to feed these, uh, these lies to our children early on in their Gerber days, don't we? Because the scripture is actually going to disagree with that. Names, words, that's one of the older versions, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. The scripture is going to disagree with that. Because words can cut deeply and cause long-term damage. Psalm 7 has been called the Song of the Slandered Saint. It's actually a beautiful title. This is a prayer that, a prayer that then turns into this proclamation of Hope in God's righteousness. Well, what is slander? If we're going to understand this psalm, slander is the making of false and damaging statements about someone or some group. 
It can be outright lies, wrong assumptions, or suggestions leading others to believe something about another that is not completely true. It damages their character and can undermine their family. Here's the peculiar anxiety that slander creates. If a person sins objectively, God has provided an objective path towards repentance and reconciliation. Right? You go to that person. You, you keep the realm as small as possible. I've objectively sinned. Now I can objectively turn back and reconcile. But with slander, it's never that clear. And with slander, there's never really a platform given to the one that's being accused to make an appeal So clarity is never really established. The damage can never fully be controlled, just like rumors can never fully be contained. A person cannot repent and reconcile over something they either have not done or something that is not fully true. Slander spawns suspicion, division, doubt, and fear that hold the potential to crush a person. The song of the slandered saint. This psalm captures several vivid images. In this you have, and this is going to be foreign to sort of American culture, but in this you have the mention of a man-eating lion. We're going to think about that for a second. In this you have an armed judge, a judge that does not need a jury, a judge who knows everything already, and you enter into his courtroom and he brings down the sentence. He doesn't just bring down the sentence, but his weapons are already out to execute swift justice. That's another staggering image. And then in the end, you have people that are pregnant with evil. They have dug a pit for others to fall into, and they stumble back and fall into the pit themselves. Just three striking images. Psalm 7 is a prayer for protection in the face of false accusations and a response of trust in the righteousness of God. So Psalm 7, open your scriptures, Psalm 7. Ethan read this psalm for us. We're going to divide it into three sections. And it really revolves around the psalmist addresses his enemies. There are really two sections we're going to combine that that focus on who God is. And then he ends again with his enemies with a final verse that sings praise to God. We're going to start by looking at verses 3 to to 5. This is our context to understand the actual opening prayer. In verses 3 through 5, the psalmist in verses 3 and 4 uses the word if three times. I want you to look at this. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause. By the way, the psalmist is not protesting that he was sinless, but that he is innocent regarding these particular charges. Right? All have sinned. Psalmist knows that there is none righteous. No one seeks after God. So he's not saying that he is sinless, that based upon his own self-righteousness, God, judge me. He's saying of these particular charges, God, I'm innocent. 
Matter of fact, in verse 5, he's going to say, if I'm not innocent, God, I'm going to appeal to you, you who knows everything. Matter of fact, let the the consequences then stand. Look at verse 5. Then, I mean, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground. And let him lay my glory in the dust. Selah. But the psalmist seems to be innocent of these charges. So look at his plea in verse 1. And perhaps this morning you've been slandered. Or a loved one has been slandered. Or somebody has drawn assumptions and firm conclusions that aren't based on fact whatsoever. Here is a plea for the slandered saint. Look at verse 1. O Lord my God, in You do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. The enemies do not attack with swords, but with words. And young people, I want to address you, and you already know this. Nobody had to put you through the school of lies. You just did it naturally, right? Like at age two. The most convincing lie is that which is packaged in the most truth. So if you can deliver 98% truth, sneak in 2% lie, that's a whole lot more convincing than to tell a flat-out 100% lie. This is one of the dangers of slander. Slander actually pulls these, these truthful details and basically reconstructs a situation that is believable. Proverbs 12:18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. Charles Spurgeon said, If there were no gratified hearers of ill reports, there would be an end of the trade of spreading them. So as we talk about Slander, we need to talk about both the speaker and the listener. And then, obviously, those that are hurt by it. And then what hope does the gospel give in light of this? Beautiful address that the psalmist opens up with. Look at verse 1. O Lord, my God. This is Yahweh Elohim. A God who keeps covenant. A personal God who is the Most High And it's important when we are in a trial, when we are facing adversity, when we are being slandered, it is very important to remember two things about God. He is close and imminent, and He is transcendent and majestic. Because if you do not have a God awareness or a God centeredness as you face adversity, you will be overcome. So he cries out, Yahweh, Elohim, save me and deliver me. Those are terms for salvation. We're going to look at that towards the end. These are the terms that we use in reference to God sending his son and saving us from sin. Psalmist cries out for refuge. And in verse 2, notice his cry. He calls them pursuers. Okay, they're following him. You can hear the feet. But you're not really going to hear the feet because of the animal that he actually likens it to pursuers like a lion a lion doesn't roar before the kill but after the kill he's silent he stalks he's virtually invisible pursuers like a lion they tear my where's the hurt what's the word 
Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, words tear the soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Now, America in the past 40 years is something of an odd place from which to consider the reality that, contrary to popular belief, there are man-eating lions, not to mention crocodiles and leopards, that find safe haven in several parts of Africa to this day. I've been close enough to them in a vehicle without a top or cage to see the eyes of a lioness dilate and to get that twitching movement as if she's about to pounce. Very unnerving. Several decades ago, one of these large felines sprang upon a Land Rover. This was one of the top game wardens in East Africa. They were in one of the large parks. He went for a ride with his wife and his little boy into the park. And here is this skilled man who understands the nature of these beasts But without any warning, that lion leapt into the Land Rover, grabbed the boy out by the skull, and thankfully the father was able to spare his child's life. My wife and I, on an anniversary, went into the South Luangwa Game Reserve, and you could smell death before we saw it. And as we pulled up, we saw the pride of lions feasting on an elephant carcass. It stunk Matter of fact, the truck couldn't get too close because people would start gagging. And the lions would turn around and look at us with their faces drenched with blood as they pulled more flesh off this rotting elephant carcass. That's what slander is. It's an amazing picture. God, my pursuers... My enemies, those who have falsely accused me, they're like lions. They want to devour me. They want to rend my soul to pieces. But there is a refuge. When you're being hunted down by a man-eater, there is a refuge. His name is Yahweh Elohim. A very personal, close God who keeps covenant and a transcendent, majestic warrior who will mete out justice. That's the refuge that you want. And then he addresses again, look at verse 3. So once again, after stating the situation, he once again says, O Lord my God, David appeals to the one who knows the truth of every matter, and he appeals to the one who knows the truth of his particular situation. So who is this he's appealing to? We're going to go into the next section. Look at verse 6. The word righteous is used three times in this section. The word righteousness two times in the entire psalm. That's going to be very important for us because in the context of these false accusations, the psalmist is making his appeal to a righteous God. What does that mean? God will do what is right. That's what Abraham cries out for when he's about to send fire and brimstone down on a city. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Yes, he will. In his time, in his way. He will meet his obligations. That's what righteousness means. The wages of sin is death. Do you know God will meet His obligation on that point? 
unless he puts his sword back in his sheath and covers you with his shield because you are safe in Christ. So he will meet his obligations. Psalm 7 presents God as an armed judge in a courtroom. Let's read verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. Again, he's not arguing that he is sinless. He's simply arguing that he is innocent of these particular charges. The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Verse 9, O let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. See, it's not that God's actually sleeping or sitting or distant that the psalmist would pray for him to wake up. It is that in the midst of this trial, the psalmist now is having an awareness of who God is. There is a desperation in his context to look to God and say, Oh, Lord, my God, save me, deliver me. Do you know that's the design of trials in our life? God hasn't orchestrated difficulty in your life. And he has not orchestrated evil people to touch your life so that it would crush you. He's actually done so so that you would turn to him. That you would look to him. That you would desire salvation from him. That you would seek for refuge in Him. That's exactly what God is doing. But it seems, though, as long as the false accusations against the psalmist remained, people would perceive God as being passive or silent or distant. And isn't that our concern, too? Isn't that our, one of our greatest struggles? We go into these difficult times where we're touched by very real evil and it seems as though God is silent. So how do you respond biblically? Arise. Lift yourself. Awake. Judge. You respond by a prayer to God. You respond with a dependence on God. You respond by looking to God. This is one of the great paradoxes that fuels either despair or God-dependent prayer. What does it look like? I mean, what does the psalmist's response to God in the midst of a very vexing situation look like? I want you to start, look at verse 9. I'm actually going to encourage you to circle six phrases. Because there are six descriptive phrases the psalmist focuses on that gives him comfort and the comfort is found not in a change of his circumstances, but in the Lord's righteous rule. Look at verse 9. You who test the minds and hearts. So who really knows all the facts about your situation? God does. And he cares. He cares for his children. Look at verse 9. Righteous God. There's the second one. 
Look at verse 10. My shield. Just circle that. Now, if you have one of our Bibles, don't use a Sharpie. You know, but unless you plan on keeping, you're welcome to take that one. You probably should take that one home then. Okay, my shield. So, here is someone who tests minds and hearts. So, so let me ask you, have your accusers, have your abusers, have those who afflict you really gotten away with it? You say, but that was 23 years ago. Okay. Verse 9, you who test the minds and hearts, righteous God. Verse 10, my shield. Verse 10, God who saves. Verse 11, righteous God. Verse 11, a God who feels indignation. Okay, did you get all those? So when the psalmist finds himself in this situation, falsely accused, slandered, feeling as though he is being tracked down by bloodthirsty predators, he looks to God and reminds himself these six things. God, you know hearts and minds and you test You are righteous. You are a shield. You are a God who saves. You are a righteous God. You are a God who feels indignation. And do you know that when God tests the minds and hearts, He does so with infinite thoroughness. Divine scrutiny leaves nothing uncovered. Hebrews 4.13 No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Now, I'm going to have you stay in Psalm 7. I'm going to read a portion of Jesus' teaching on the Olivet Discourse where we get a glimpse of the judgment of the nations. This is going to be very important because the psalmist's hope is not simply that he is vindicated immediately. As a matter of fact, there's nothing in the psalm that lets us know that that this person lives happily ever after in this life. But there is a future glance towards a judgment of this God who is righteous, who tests the minds and the hearts, who is a shield, who's a righteous God. Jesus taught this, when the Son of Man comes in His glory. Now, has that happened yet? No, not yet. This is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we wait and what we watch for. Jesus taught when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. It's one of the only places where Jesus calls Himself a King. Before Him, before the Son of Man, will be gathered all the nations. And He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He uses a very familiar pastoral term that, that, that folks would understand. Often in the evening where the goats could not withstand the cold in the cooler months, they would separate them when they would put the goats inside and the sheep would remain outside. So this is a very understood practice that, that, that you have complete goats and you have complete sheep. When they are gathered before the Son of Man... He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. That's the title of our psalm series this summer, Blessed. 
Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed. See, that there was nothing that remedied the curse from Genesis 3. Yes, God sent a son. Yes, God made provision. Yes, He made Jesus to be a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Yes, He sent His Son who knew no sin to be made sin for us so that we might receive the righteousness of God. But these are still cursed. He will say to those on His left, depart from Me, you cursed, into the, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into, I want you to hear these words, eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Every person on earth will be called to give an account of themselves to God. And here's my question for you this morning. Will you face his unsheathed sword in the courtroom or will you be protected by his shield? Ethan made reference to those weapons. It's not just that the sword and the shield are protecting his children. No, the sword is unsheathed to mete out justice because he is a righteous God. Look at verse 10. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. What does that mean? There's what's called a whetstone. It's an older term. My dad would use a whetstone when he would sharpen the blades of knives and he would put a little bit of oil on this well-chosen stone and you could just hear the scraping. And what he was doing, he was putting an edge, a fine blade on that knife. If a man does not repent, if he doesn't return, God will wet, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. It's not just that he has bow, a bow and arrow in the corner, but he's actually pulling back on the string. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. He's dipped these arrow tips in some kind of pitch, and they're flaming, and the bow is bent, and the sword is sharpened, and it's drawn. See, these, these are images that are, that are somewhat foreign to us. What you have here is a divine warrior judge. So there's, there's on a whole other level, okay, let's just put our slanderers and our accusers aside. On a whole other level, we need to be praying, God, save us. Deliver us. Because there is one who prowls about like a roaring lion seeking to devour and there is an enemy we fear, I think, even more than him. And that enemy is called death. Matter of fact, the writer of Hebrews says we, live, we have lived in lifelong fear, in slavery to death. And the Scriptures teach that the wages of sin is death. These weapons, these swords, the ready bow, are metaphors for inescapable judgment. The armory of God's wrath is ready both to save as well as to mete out swift judgment. So rather than us as God's people being embarrassed about the holy 
fierceness of the true God. We need to take comfort in that. Where's the comfort in that? The comfort in that is that we don't live this life with the affliction of evil and evil people forever. The idea of eternal life is attractive and beautiful because of not just its duration, but its quality. In that place, there will be no liars. There will be no adulterers. There will be no slander. There will be no wickedness. That's what makes us long for that. Well, how do you get that place? You have a just, holy, divine warrior judge. That's what we are assured of in this psalm. Now, the psalmist moves back to describing his enemies. Look at verse 14. Here, the wicked person's sin is described in the metaphor of conception and pregnancy. First, you'll see the growth of evil. Look at verse 14. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. See, the natural man, the man who has not been delivered by God through the gift of grace, has no choice but to be a slave to his sin. It is his nature. Yes, that's true of all of us. David, in praying, said, In sin my mother conceived me. There is a natural aspect. And natural men follow natural paths. And that's why the idea of new birth, being born again, and we're given God's Holy Spirit in us. Jesus teaches in Mark 7:21, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. They're natural to him. This is the adversity of living in a fallen world. The Apostle James speaks of the same desire, sin, death cycle too. He says, but each person is tempted. See, there is even for a believer this pull still towards these things. And the warning is, everyone is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It's an incredible picture here. So the psalmist, after he cries out to God's character, he says, now behold my enemies. These are natural men, natural brute beasts, who have sin indwelling in them, and they conceive, and they're pregnant, and they give birth to it. But I want you to know the certainty of their judgment. Look at verse 15. He's still talking about his enemies. He says, he makes a pit, digging it out, Right? He's taking time to dig this hole, whether to, catch, whether to capture uh, prey or whether to capture an enemy. He's taking time. He's digging this deep pit. He's going to cover it. He's going to camouflage it. He's going to put it in the exact right spot. All this premeditated digging. He makes a pit, digging it out. But he slips and falls into the hole that he has made. Verse 16, his mischief returns upon his own head. And on his own skull, his violence descends. So here you have the principle of both evil and its consequences. 
clearly stated. Proverbs 26, 27 says, Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. So is that true? Is that, is that your experience in this life? And I'm going to say no. Is this always our experience in this life? That everyone who digs a pit to cause harm falls into it. That everyone who abuses a child gets caught. That everyone who kidnaps a child gets kidnapped himself. Is that true to our experience? And folks, we have to have intellectual honesty here. The answer that I think we have to arrive at is no, it's not true. You have serial killers on the loose, and some will never be caught in this life. I mean, is, is that a wrong statement? So what is the hope? Where, where is the truth then of this? When we cry out and we say, rise, awake, what are we praying? Where is our confidence? What is our hope? Because if our hope is that somehow we're going to see all the evil people justly tried and sentenced in our lifetime, you're going to be very disappointed. And that's why the psalmist turns himself to Yahweh Elohim. As a matter of fact, he's going to end with a different title, Yahweh Elyon. The same thing that Nebuchadnezzar cried out after God dealt with him in ways unknown to most men. And he finally cries out and he says, Now I know that the God in heaven is the Most High God. And that will be the confession of all people. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. That's our hope. Gospel hope isn't just that everything's going to be okay now in this life. Gospel hope projects you to the future where everything, because of this God, will be made right. It will be as it should be. The ultimate instance of someone falling into their own pit is when God's Son is killed. Very interesting. Death kind of digs a pit. And, they, and Jesus does die. And three days later, what happens? Death falls into its own pit and dies. The stone falls on death's head and crushes it. The very thing they thought was going to extinguish the Messiah turns around and deals the death blow. By the way, that's the very promise given to us in Genesis 3, verse 15. This was God's plan all along, that through this one, death would be crushed. The writer of Hebrews says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. How do we respond to this? How do we respond to the very real anxiety of slander, false accusation, and evil that touches us? You look to God. You have an awareness of God. You cry out to God. 
you trust in God. Brethren, you do not avenge yourselves. You do not return evil for evil, but you leave it to God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And you camp there until you see him. Look at verse 17. Look at how the psalmist responds. I will give. Folks, that's a worshipful response. You give. You don't get. You don't take. I will give to the Lord really two things here. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. It doesn't just say to his name. But it says, I'm going to give thanks to the one who will meet his obligations, the one who is just, the one who will unsheathe that sword and meet out judgment. Yes, we pray for our enemies. We hope they turn to God, but we can be thankful that God will make all things right as they should be. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. The entire psalm celebrates the righteousness of God. Here's what you need to hear this morning. Even in the middle of your pain, the middle of your adversity, God will do what is right. God is just. God loves and cares for you. Nothing has been outside of His sovereign orchestration. Everything has a purpose though you may not know that purpose right now. And He is a God we can call out to who is close. But you don't just want a close God. You want a majestic divine warrior as well. And He is the one that goes forth into battle. The gift we give in return is one of thanksgiving and singing praise to Him. And here is our hope. Jesus was slandered. You do realize that. Wrong assumptions were made about his earthly parents. He was betrayed even by one of his own disciples. He was reviled, rejected, shamed, and beaten. But, let me stop right there. It's not enough to simply know that a good man experienced similar things that we endure today, is it? But it's what this particular man, Jesus, accomplished while leaving us an example. Peter writes, Christ suffered for you, not simply like you, for you, on your behalf, as a sacrifice. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges Fairly. And he did so as an example, but he did so in a very unique way because Christ suffered not as you for an example, but he suffered for you. The sinless one became a sin sacrifice. God's son was crucified on a cross and he was killed. And we should praise God for that because as he was killed, he rose again and conquered what? Sin, death, and the devil. Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. And the disciples were troubled. Their master, their teacher was about to be crucified. And and they understood that in their life they would face adversity and suffering too. But the gospel points people to a future time. 
Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. By the way, that's future. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus knew the kinds of martyrdom his disciples would face, and yet he pointed them to a future place. That was their hope. A land that has the absence of these things, even the absence of the memory of evil. Are you slandering? Maybe you're the slanderer. Jesus would say, repent and reconcile and leave your gift here. And the first thing you need to do is go ask forgiveness and reconcile. Are you being slandered? Get your focus back on God. The Gospel gives hope. But not just here, but in a time which has not yet happened, but it's close. I'm going to close just by reading a portion of Jesus' teaching that should give us hope and can only be realized by the Holy Spirit as He empowers us. Jesus taught, Blessed, it's the name of our psalm series, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, right, I said I said to those truly born again, my children, kingdom citizens, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Peter writes, Christ suffered for you, in your place, for your sin. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. Good news. If you are not a believer this morning, Jesus says, turn and believe. He paid the price for your sin. The wages of sin is death. God is a righteous judge. That, he will inflict that punishment. But there's hope and there's deliverance in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Psalm 7, preserving it for us, for our hope. We know that whatsoever things were written beforehand were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. We thank You not just that Your Son understood the hurt of slander, but that He died 
for us. That He paid the penalty for our sin. He paid the penalty for the sin of slander that we have said and all the other sins in which we have offended You. Thank You for sending Jesus Christ as a free gift of Your grace for the forgiveness of sin to be received by faith alone. So as we sing, as we respond, as the psalmist responded with thanksgiving and songs of praise, may we do so now, not just to conclude our service, but Lord, may we sing these texts in honor and praise of who You are, what You have done, what You are doing, and what You have promised to do. We praise You for Your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.